Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a um, very exciting founder. I think that he's going to really tell us uh, a thing or two about the educational space, you know, like how that's transforming, how he was able to go from offline to online and really build a solid business, you know, that actually he bootstrapped for seven years before taking any any investment. So um, I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Chuck Khan. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you for having me on today. Excited to be here. So originally born and raised in San Luis. So how was how was life growing up there? Uh, well, I love St. Louis, and I'm still here today. It's a great city to raise a family in. Great schools, uh, low cost of living, easy to get around, lots of parks. Great place to uh, to have grown up. Very cool. And I understand that. Um, you know, obviously, we're going to talk about your your business in just a little bit, but. But early on, you, I mean, I, you know, they say that ideas, they take time to incubate. And, you know, it's a frustration that slowly, you know, you're starting to, to see with more colors and so forth. But, but for you, you know, early on, you started to really experience the, this frustration. And that was with needing extra assistance, you know, growing up in school. Is that right? It is. I, I had some remarkably positive experiences with private tutoring when I was in high school, going from an F to an A plus with the help of, Brad, the geometry tutor, and there are other times where I could have benefited from help and just couldn't find anybody in time for a big exam. And there were other times where uh, I was paired with a, a tutor that we found online or through a local university who just wasn't any good. In one case, it was a French tutor who didn't speak any English, and that was a very frustrating experience. And that kind of informed uh, you know, the business model later on and, and the idea. And obviously, we're going to talk about that, but but you, at a very, very early stage, you you made the decision. You knew that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I believe that was in kindergarten. So how did this happen? It's, it's a little bit earlier than, than everyone else. Well, I, I think I'm just programmed this way. So when I was in kindergarten, I, I had an idea that I was going to start a haunted house and charge kids in the neighborhood admission. Um, it never worked out. I, I sort of had the haunted house. Nobody paid me any money, but that was probably the, the first failed startup I had. And there were several more throughout the course of my next uh, 12 years in, in school. And so um, there was a different business, an eBay-related business that I tried to start when I was in middle school. There was uh, a summer camp in elementary school where I had the idea that I was going to post around the neighborhood and recruit students and their parents were going to pay me for 
for um, access to the summer camp. And the police were actually called on me uh, and, and forced me to take down the flyers that I'd put up for recruiting students to this uh, the summer camp. So there were a number of failed startups uh, before my, my current business. Did you see a pattern between all these failed startups that perhaps was a, a really important lesson or learning for you to, that you applied later on? You know, honestly, I can't say I did. They were so unrelated. I certainly wasn't equipped or set up for success as a K through eight student yeah. uh, to pursue these. And so there's, there's definitely a um, minimum amount of knowledge and skill necessary to execute. And, and certainly that grows over time as you gain more life experiences. Absolutely. And, and how did this come about? I mean, was there like someone in your family or, or someone that you read about that was an entrepreneur or, or tell us about this? Well, my, my parents were always very encouraging of this. Um, my, my father was a real estate developer and architect and my parents in general recognized that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and supported me going to college to get uh, my degree specifically in entrepreneurship. I also majored in finance. And uh, in general, I just had a lot of family support for this. Uh, I had a grandfather who, who was very entrepreneurial and, and had a variety of business ventures as well. And so to some extent, it ran in the family, but I also just had a lot of parental support. And going to college and, and, and being in university really reinforced that you needed to really get out there and, and start something new. So, so tell us about what happened. And, you know, you got this sparkness going on again after going into this calculus course that you were taking in university. Yeah. So I was studying for a Calc 2 course. I was majoring in finance and entrepreneurship at Washington University in St. Louis. And it was the night before a big exam. And I realized that I didn't understand really any of the material and I was going to fail the midterm the next day. And two of my good friends, uh, Lewis and Dave, ended up helping me study for this exam. And they were able to explain the material in a fundamentally different way. They had great communication skills. They had expert subject knowledge. They were patient uh, and they actually enjoyed teaching. And the material finally clicked. And I ended up getting a, a great grade in that course. For me, that was, a, I think, a B. And I ended up coming to the realization that had I had access to people like this when I was in high school, I would have had a better experience. I would have gotten better grades. I would have enjoyed school more. And I ended up asking these two friends if they'd be willing to work as tutors and I'd be responsible for going out to the local community and finding students. And so kind of haggled over. Uh, a rate, shook hands, and um, the business was born. And so I, I went to my parents and borrowed $1,000 to start the company and uh, spent $450 on letterhead and flyers to get the word out and spent $500 on a three-page website. And, and that, that was kind of the beginning of the business. And it took you three years to really you know, make the decision of uh, going you know, full swing. So why, why was that the case? Well, I, so I started the company my, my junior year in college and just started answering the phones myself, posting in coffee shops. And very quickly, we had a, a good, stable base of tutors who were actually um, providing services to the local community You know, as a result of interactions that occurred through our platform. And uh, we were getting great feedback. And so very early on, I came to the realization that this was a really data intensive industry and labor intensive industry. And it was necessary to invest in some sort of technology to keep track of everything. And so 
uh, in the early days, we were very limited by how labor intensive and data intensive this was. And it, it took us a little while to actually figure out a, a technical solution for this. And the whole time I was working as a student um, and then later graduated and had a couple jobs after college before I decided to do this full time. And those couple of jobs, I guess, uh, you know, they were probably very important because most of the founders that I work, I mean, that I that I interview and that I also, you know, be, be advise or so forth, they have similar similar backgrounds. No, so so this is they're either coming from consulting, investment banking, or the investment side as a VC, private equity, or so forth. So you actually did two of them, which is investment banking and then also uh, VC. So what did you learn from you know, during this experience as an investment banker or perhaps as an investor? Well, I, yeah, so I, I consider myself a recovering investment banker, having having only made it a year there before I, I decided to uh, pursue more, more interesting lines of work that was uh, kind of less demanding. Um, but it's incredibly analytical. You have to demonstrate high attention to detail. You learn financial modeling. It forces you to really understand the mechanics of a P&L. And it just gives you an appreciation for capital markets. And so I, I actually learned an incredible amount in um, investment banking. I was working for Wachovia in their energy and power investment banking group, working on um, debt issuances, equity, and um, M&A. And then I spent three years working for a healthcare private equity uh, and venture capital fund as the junior private equity associate, kind of flying around the country with partners hearing management teams and entrepreneurs pitch their their businesses and outline a plan for why uh, why they needed capital and and what they were going to do with it and and why we should entrust our our funds to them kind of investing 10 to 20 million dollars in mid to late stage IT services and device companies and healthcare and um, that was just an incredible experience and provided me an opportunity to hear these seasoned entrepreneurs walk through their business models, how they were going to build a product that really delighted customers and, and generated long-term value. And, and then ultimately, um, I was able to kind of watch how they executed. And I'd try to take a little bit of what I learned during the day and employ it to some modest extent at night on my, my side hustle, Varsity Tutors. So was there like any type of pattern that, well, well, a couple of questions here, any type of pattern that you saw on the companies that you guys would end up investing and then also pattern on the companies that ended up having a good execution that led them to succeed? Absolutely. So the companies that were that had great products had a markedly easier time selling those products and scaling. Um, the companies that had focused, uh, disciplined founders and management teams tended to kind of outperform those that were, were, were less disciplined in their focus or uh, were less clear on their execution strategy. And so the takeaway for me was that you really had to focus on delighting customers and building a great product. And if you did that, everything else would be easier. And so that was probably the most influential thing I took away from the process, in addition to all of the uh, capital raising and, and venture capital and private equity related skills you inevitably develop in the role. And during this time, I mean, you were saying that, that you were paid spending time you know at night on on building your business so who was who was really managing this because i mean it's you need someone kind of like full time or or someone that you can rely on you know, on the day to day well we had area managers so the the original business 
was kind of akin to a model, a, a territory manager model, where you would expand city by city, building up a supply base of instructors, taking inventory of who had what knowledge, and then making them available to the local community through a vertical, vertically integrated marketplace model. And each market was run by a kind of mini general manager or territory manager. And so it, initially, it got to the point when I was in college, and I was personally answering the phones and stepping out of classes that I thought to myself, oh, God, I'm going to fail out of college if I don't do something. And so I went on Craigslist and found our our first area manager, or regional director, as we called them. And after I graduated, we actually got up to the point where we had about 10 or 11 full-time people when I was working in venture capital. And I was coming home at night at 8 or 9 o'clock at night. And then I was giving them a call and it started getting to the point where, uh, one, it was kind of weird that everybody else was ending their day and I was just starting my day at Varsity Tutors. And then separately, it became clear that I was the thing holding back the business from growing, my time and attention. So what was that day for you, Chuck, that um, you got back from working the nine to five, you're right back to your house or, or to the office and you said, it's time for me to, to give my notice and to dedicate my life now to Varsity Tutors. Well, I, I actually remember it well. So we had a team dinner and all of our area managers who lived in the St. Louis area went out to dinner and they brought their spouses or significant others. And the husband of one of our area managers very pointedly asked me why I hadn't quit my job. And what he said was, my wife is dedicating her life at, to this business. She's passionate about it. Why aren't you passionate enough to quit? And it really hit home. And I thought about it all night long. And the next day, I came to the realization that um, I had just not quit out of fear, fear of the unknown. And uh, I did, in fact, believe in this business. I did, in fact, think that it could transform an industry and help eventually hundreds of thousands or millions of people. But I had let my, my fear hold me back from doing it full time. So I guess looking back now, Chuck, do you regret not jumping into it earlier? I do. Um, that said, there was a lot of value in bootstrapping the business and figuring out exactly uh, what we needed to do before I put my full time and attention on. And I say that partially because I was able to take a lot of the money that I made in my day job in the form of a salary and plow it back into the technological infrastructure. So we wouldn't have had the capital available to pay software developers um, had I taken a you know, a modest salary and, and not had a day job. So I do wish I'd quit earlier, but there was also real value in bootstrapping it and de-risking it. Of course. So then you give your notice, what happens next? Well, at the time we were in five cities and we had 10 full-time employees and several hundred tutors working through the platform. And I, I had had this idea that markets outside of the Midwest were going to be more competitive and sophisticated. and um, it was going to be very, very challenging to enter the, the largest markets in the country like New York and San Francisco, uh, just simply because it was different than our, our uh, you know, local markets and it was more evolved and more competitive. And so I actually worked as the first regional manager of our New York City location, had phone calls routing to my own personal cell phone. We turned on advertising. We launched and very quickly, I was completely overwhelmed. I remember getting 60 or 70 phone calls a day to my phone, um, and I, I couldn't keep up. And so 
within about six weeks, it got to the point where I realized I had to help. Uh, I had to hire several people to help me manage the territory and kind of backed out of of a role actually talking to customers and focused on growing the business. But that was kind of a pivotal moment where I realized, holy cow, we're going to be able to scale this thing nationally. And we have a very, very high quality service and experience that we're facilitating and people throughout the country are going to be able to benefit from this and they're willing to pay for it because it's a great service. Because now that you were full-time, I mean, I'm sure that you were able to really unlock and discover all of the uh, beautiful challenges that you had in front of you. So what were some of these challenges during the early days of uh, being at it, you know, in full swing? Absolutely. So when you're not focused on something full-time, you don't have, you don't realize all the available underlying business drivers and levers that you have available to you. And so in our case, a lot of it comes down to the instructor quality and finding the right person for a given student's needs and then doing that highly efficiently so you can provide substantially more value at a lower cost. So if you can provide a higher quality service at a lower cost in a more convenient manner, in any services-based environment, you will ultimately take market share and win. And so in order to do that, you need to invest heavily in technology to become more and more efficient and be able to um, make sure that what a customer's paying for is something that they would actually value. So we invested very heavily in the process automation and technology around identifying and credentialing great instructors and making them available to people. And despite the fact that over the course of the last four or five years, we've transitioned the business from almost entirely in person to entirely online, the reality is that the instructor quality still matters greatly and that process automation in the early days served as kind of a foundational piece of the infrastructure we built. Because what is the business model so that people listening understand? What is the business model uh, of Varsity Tutors? So Varsity Tutors is a live learning platform that seamlessly connects experts and learners in any subject, anywhere, anytime. So we can help students learn any of about 2,500 different subjects in person online, on mobile, um, or in a live group class setting. And so students will actually buy buckets of tutoring, hours of tutoring, and they can use that across any of the 40,000 instructors on the platform in any of the 2,500 different subjects. So they actually, you actually pay per hour and it's volume-based where the more you purchase, the less it is per hour, as would normally be the case. Got it. And I understand that, uh, you know, obviously one of the um, critical moments in the in the journey of, of building this business was really transitioning from the offline to the online world. Uh, and I believe that uh, during the early days, I mean, for you guys, you were getting some negative feedback and, and really your conviction was what drove you through those um, those, those, those bumpy, bumpy days. So um, so tell us about this pivot, because uh, you know, it's it's a significant one. Well, tutoring is a, a profession that goes back thousands of years. People thousands of years ago received tutoring in, uh, in Greece and Rome and, and a whole host of ancient civilizations. And so there's a lot of history behind the idea of working one-on-one with a master teacher of some sort and uh, doing so in person. And so in, in 2014, there was a uh, kind of shift in how a couple of the big big technology companies that had internet browsers were thinking about transmitting audio and video packets peer to peer 
And they wanted to do so in a browser-based setting to an extent that hadn't been possible previously. And we kind of sensed that there was a technological transition happening that we could kind of seize upon that would allow us to replicate this offline experience online and enhance it in ways that just weren't previously possible. And so we became one of the first services-based companies in the world that we know of that was heavily investing around this new internet protocol called WebRTC. And um, when we started building it and started talking about it, I received an incredible amount of resistance from, from just about anybody I talked to, people outside the company that I knew, business advisors, uh, parents of students, tutors, our own internal team. And um, it, it was surprising to me because I thought, you know, well, maybe nobody's built this yet, but you can kind of see all of the building blocks that are in place. You should be able to meet at home. That would remove friction of driving and, and all sorts of scheduling time. You could get paired with the best person for you within 5,000 miles as opposed to the person who lives within five miles. Um, the instructors are going to be happier because they don't have to drive anywhere. They can do everything from the comfort of their own home. And then you're going to be able to enhance this with content and tools in a way that just isn't possible in person. And then lastly, you can record the whole experience to an extent you can't in person. So you can actually continue to get value out of it on an ongoing basis. And so those were kind of things that I considered to be truths. And I believed that if you could enhance the experience in all those different ways to an extent that you couldn't in person, eventually you'd get the tech right and you'd be able to build a product that removed enough friction that it was just better than the offline experience of meeting with a tutor in your home or a coffee shop or something else like that. And that eventually meeting online uh, would enable the instructor and the student to have superpowers that just weren't possible in that offline world. So I just had conviction that eventually we'd get there. And we spent six months building a, an MVP. We launched this thing, and it just completely flopped. The, the tutors hated it. The parents hated it. WebRTC at the time was unstable. And there were a number of glitches in our own software infrastructure. And it was, it was a pretty humbling experience, but I still believe we'd eventually be able to get it right. And we spent another nine months really, really listening to our customers. And that was a, a key lesson there that I took away from that experience is how critical customer feedback is. And we spent nine months getting feedback to make sure we got all the bugs out of the system. We removed friction. We delighted, delighted customers and users of the platform. And eventually we got it right. And when we got it right, you know, the feedback was outstanding right out of the gate. And it became clear that we were onto something pretty big. And how were you able to, to really filter the feedback and, and take it in a way in which you could implement it? Because, I mean, there's, there's some people that have the thought, you know, for example, Steve Jobs, that in many instances, the customers don't know what they want. Well, in the early days, a lot of the feedback was so foundational, you realize you just had to do it. It had to do with platform stability. It had to do with sharing information. Some of it was so basic that uh, it, it almost seemed obvious that we had to do it to replicate key aspects of that in-person interaction, which was kind of the base expectation that a customer had going in. I want this to be at least as good as the in-person experience. As it relates to some of the more advanced features or things that people wouldn't have thought of their own, those are things that even to this day we experiment with. And, and sometimes if we really have conviction that they could be additive, we'll just 
we'll just roll them out if we believe that the market may not be aware of them yet, but but would benefit from them. Got it. And in terms of um, of marketplaces, because obviously here you have the the tutors on one end, and then you know the students as well. So so what have you learned about building the supply and the demand? Well, uh, figuring out equilibrium is is always a challenge, and so um, anytime you have tens of thousands of people on two sides of a network that are reliant upon one another, you effectively have to serve as market maker and be really conscious of volume. So we've had to build a lot of systems and do a lot of math-based work that allows us to, at a very, very fine level, predict demand and understand supply to an extent that that maybe isn't necessary in other types of business models. And so in particular, um, in our case, there's more than 2,500 different subjects. Each of those subjects could be multiplied by every single city or even every single zip code in the country, and you can end up with millions and millions of SKUs. And so figuring out the way to group that information so that it's actionable is one of the things that allows you to actually deliver on your promises to customers and ensure that you have a high-quality instructor available for them that can fulfill their expectations and allow them to get the grades, test scores, confidence boost they're, they're looking for. Got it. And you guys were obviously executing, bootstrapping the operation for seven years. So why did you decide to raise money? Well, as we were building this online platform, and uh, it, it became apparent that while this was the platform itself was very relevant for private tutoring was actually relevant for facilitating knowledge transfer in all sorts of other categories as well. So you could just as easily connect somebody with a programming instructor or a music, uh, somebody to help with music lessons or effectively anything that involved with one person teaching somebody else a skill could be facilitated through the same platform. And a lot of the processes and technology that we'd built related to efficiently bringing on tens of thousands of instructors per year and ensuring that they had the right skills and background necessary to be successful could similarly be applied in areas outside of traditional academic tutoring and test prep. And so prior to that point in time, we thought about the business as a, a marketplace for private tutoring and after that that moment in time, we started thinking about it as something that we call a live learning platform. So the big idea that we're going after is that for the first time in human history, it's now possible to build a platform that allows anybody who needs expertise to connect with somebody who has that expertise in real time anywhere in the world with a click of the button. And I consider that to be a once-in-a-generation opportunity. And so around that point in time, um, Airbnb was doing well. Uber was doing well. As a result, verticalized marketplaces were getting a lot of attention, and we had probably 40 or so venture funds reach out to us. And I ended up going in and asking two local entrepreneurs here in St. Louis um, for some advice. They were running a company called Answers.com. And they, uh, instead, instead of providing me advice on how to raise capital, which is something that they had had done extensively, having raised several large institutional rounds, they came back to me and said, well, wait a second, this might actually be something that we'd be inter interested in investing in. Would you consider coming in and pitching us the actual business like you would an investor, as opposed to coming in and asking for advice? 
So I was kind of caught off guard, but I came in and did that the next week and we really hit it off. Got it. Got it. And, and obviously shout out to David Karandish. You know, he, he did a, a great episode as well. He was one of the guys that sold dancers.com for over 900 million. So uh, super, super smart guy. Out of curiosity, how the hell did you get Adam Levine from, uh, from, from Maroon 5 to, you know, the singer to come and, and, and put some money on this? Well, that was actually our, our Series B investor, Technology Crossover Ventures, made that connection. One of our investors, uh, Ramsey Ramsey, who is now at SoftBank, actually made that introduction. And, um, and, and you know, we were fortunate enough to connect with Adam's team, and, and he's passionate about education and learning, and, and we kind of hit it off there. Very cool. Because you guys uh, have done a, a couple of rounds. How much capital have you guys raised to date that is uh, publicly disclosed? We've raised about $110 million over the course of the last five years. And during these different financing milestones, I mean, what, what have you seen? What has changed? What expectations have been there? Like, can you walk us through how this has been over time? Sure. So, you know, our initial Series A round from David Karandish and Chris Sims, two local entrepreneurs and angel investors here in St. Louis was $7 million. Um, you know, their pitch to me was, you don't have a board of directors. You're running this company from the home office that adjoins your bedroom. We can help you prepare for an institutional round and, and be a little bit better prepared to do so. And so while I worked in venture capital, I was a first-time entrepreneur and CEO, and I found that prospect pretty appealing. And so over the course of the next year, you know, they actually helped me prepare for that first institutional round, ensure that we had our metrics in order, um, and, and generally pass along some advice on how to scale a business, ensure you're still delighting customers as you grow, and setting yourself up for success. And so the next year, um, we kind of went out to a handful of funds who had reached out and, and had a lot of interest and excitement around the idea that we're going after building a platform that could facilitate all of knowledge transfer and um, bringing live instruction online to an extent that it wasn't possible before. And we ended up talking to about five funds um, out of those 40 or 50 that had reached out and ultimately chose to work with um, one fund, TCV Technology Crossover Ventures, that we felt had the deepest set of experience in two sided consumer internet marketplaces. Um, but also had a deep passion around the product we were building and the pro problem set that we were going after and, and w was similarly convinced that we were going to be able to help millions of kids better prepare for life experiences and get the help that they needed and build a really great business around bringing live instruction and tutoring from offline to online. Very, very cool. Very cool. And, and how big is the business today? How many employees do you guys have? We have about 650 full-time employees. Wow. So, um, you know, we're talking here a lot about learning and, and tutoring and things like that. But what about yourself? How did you develop yourself as a leader? How were you able to grow at the same pace as your own business so that it didn't outgrow you? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, frankly, it's, it's always ongoing. So um, I asked for a lot of feedback. I, we, we, I'm fortunate to have a really strong board of directors and... They're not shy about providing feedback, but I actually, um, I, I think one of the things that I think is most important for 
founder CEOs in particular is to be cognizant of how limited your own experiences are and try to take all the feedback that you receive, actively solicit feedback, and then try to make yourself a little bit better. Um, And it requires being humble and being able to take sharp criticism and then being willing to actually adjust your behavior accordingly. So it's something that um, I pride myself on. You can always do a better job, but I think first and foremost, you actually have to recognize how limited your own skill set is and that there's a need to get better to make sure that you can properly support the company and all your employees and set yourself up for success. Absolutely. And in terms of the of the board, I mean, any any type of um, takeaways on on how you can really make it super effective, especially for the folks that may be listening that are starting to put together the corporate structure of their business and the governance and all of that. So so how do you think that really boards, you know, work effectively or should work effectively with with a founder or, or with a CEO? Well, first off, I think you should do a lot of research before you add somebody to your board. I, I often see startups uh, become impressed by somebody's background and very quickly extend them a board seat. And that's something that that I'm very thankful we haven't done. We've been very, very careful in getting to know people before we either allowed them to invest in the business or alternatively extended them a, a board seat. And so um, I, I'd say, first off, be really careful about who you pick and make sure you find people that share your values, that that you're going to get along with. You're going to have to spend an incredible amount of time with them um, in good times and in high-pressure situations and in everything in between. And you just want to make sure that uh, you can that that you can actually uh, get along over what could be a really really long relationship. And then separately, um, you know, I always try to over communicate and structure all of my communication so that I can get as much feedback as possible from our board. So I very much see them as a resource, and I need to arm them with as much thoughtful information as possible presented in a really structured way so they can give me the feedback necessary for me and the rest of our our team to do a good job. Very cool. Very cool. And and being in San Luis, I mean, obviously this is a, not Silicon Valley or, or not New York City where there is a ton of money and then also a ton of uh, people that come from, let's say, colleges and so forth to to get a job. No? So, so what kind of... Um, did you experience like any challenges or how do you see the, the region developing in terms of, let's say, access to capital and access to talent? Well, the region's evolved pretty significantly over the course of the last 12 and a half years since I started my business. So there are a lot of biotech and healthcare related funds here that provide access to capital. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of innovation involving pharma, therapeutics, devices, uh, and ag tech Monsanto was, uh, is headquartered here as well. And so, um, in the consumer internet world, the, the ecosystem is much less robust. And so over the course of the last couple of years, a couple of big consumer early stage funds have emerged that really have helped, um, build this community. So, you know, so I, I would say I didn't have access to the same, um, community that exists today, but the St. Louis startup ecosystem is going well. In the early days, I received a lot of support from Washington University in St. Louis and the faculty there who made a number of connections that were really helpful. But as it related to raising capital, I was I was a little bit on my own. Um, but that's that's clearly changed in the last few years. And how, you know, talking about, you know, you being on your own when it comes to to raising capital, how do you how do you deal 
with the roller coaster of emotions that are involved with with raising money? Well, the the roller coaster of emotions probably just isn't isn't limited to raising capital. It's probably it probably extends to building a business or building anything, um, whether it's a business or something else entirely that that you care about. So, um, from my perspective, it's a process. Um, at the end of the day, if if you have a good business model that uh, that customers love, it's a lot easier to generate unit level economics that are going to excite investors. So that's where I put the super majority of my time. In the early days, I, I'd say I wasted time and energy taking a lot of investor calls when I, I should have been spending time figuring out how to build a great product and grow the business in general. Um, but as it relates to capital, you know, it's a process. You need to talk to people that understand and share your vision and are going to have a, a shared set of values and have a lot of conviction that you can build this business. And talking about the business itself, Varsity Tutors, where, I mean, in a, in a world where, let's say, the vision of Varsity Tutors is fully realized, what does that world look like? Well, one of the products that we spent a great deal of time building over the course of the last several years was the instant tutoring capability. So you can download our mobile app, click a button, and video chat with an instructor in as little as 20 seconds in more than 250 different subjects, which is a really magical experience. And it's not something you can, it's not an experience you can get in either tutoring or really any other industry. In, in healthcare, it can take you 20 minutes, you know, with some of these on-demand doctor programs to get connected to a live, a live doctor. And that's not magical. But clicking a button and video chatting with an expert that you've never talked to who has the skills that you need in real time really is. And so that's a capability that we spent many years building, and eventually we'll, we'll be able to extend it to more and more subjects and help people uh, in a wider range of topics worldwide. So for me, um, it's important that we evolve the platform so that we meet students uh, where, where they want to meet. And that could mean providing different modalities like mobile, online, group classes, et cetera. It can also mean um, helping them in all the different ways they might need to receive help. So we have a broad mandate, and we're trying to go after the most exciting opportunities within that that mandate. And, you know, it's really interesting how, you know, you, you were mentioning earlier how tutoring, you know, like has been out there for for quite a while. You know, obviously education and all these universities, you know, have been out there, you know, for quite a while. So, I guess where, I mean, in your case, you guys really experienced that transition from offline to online. And, and now that, you know, when you're like taking a look at, at a whole at, at, at the world of education, where do you think things are heading? Well, people increasingly want help quickly. They want a deep level of personalization and customer expectations in all categories, certainly in this one, are going up each and every year. And so we feel the need to better personalize the services to increase the quality and reliability of the service uh, and just generally, you know, up our game a little bit with each passing month. So we're investing heavily around diagnostics, around machine learning infrastructure that can allow us to find the best solution for you out of the thousands that may exist and trying to provide a higher quality service at a lower cost in a more convenient manner. Very cool. Very cool. So, so, Chuck, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? 
just check out varsitytutors.com and look through all of our different products and services and, and see how we might be able to help you. There's thousands of different subjects and there's a variety of modalities. So whatever your learning goals are, we should be able to help you. Amazing. And just one last question. And this one is one that I always ask the folks that, that come on the show. And that is knowing what you know now, Chuck, I mean, you've, you've been at it for a while. If you had the opportunity to, to, to have a chat with your younger self, uh, and be able to give that younger self one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Very early on, I operated to a great extent on, on kind of gut and intuition, and I didn't spend enough time listening to customers. And if you do that, you, ha you can generate a much better sense of, of where you ultimately want to go and how you can better meet their needs. And you can, you can have a North Star that you're working towards. And so in the early days, I, I don't think I, I had it. You know, we were kind of iterating uh, and building the business step by step, but we didn't have a sense for where we wanted to get to. And so I would tell my younger self to figure out where you want to go, find that North Star, and then build towards that. Very profound, Chuck. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.